Welcome to the Reform Millennials Podcast. Tune in each week to hear Joel Shackleton and his guests' insights into public stock market news, North American politics, and the world of entrepreneurship and startups. Joel is a portfolio manager and partner at GIM Wealth, an Edmonton-based private wealth manager. The goal of this podcast is to help millennials better invest their time and money by taking advantage of long-term market trends, whether that means finding the right startup to work for, private company to invest in, or new ways to protect and grow your assets. Welcome back to another episode of Reform Millennials. I was going to say spring has sprung before today, Joel, but here at Edmonton, we got the, woke up to more snow, then it melted, and then it was beautiful this afternoon. You got everything in one day, just as usual in Alberta. It was great just seeing everybody's Instagram posts telling the (laughs) snow to go, you know, head back home, you know, but yeah, it was a little chilly, but this afternoon was great. We went to a birthday party, which was fun. Mm-hmm. There's nothing better than a overpacked child's gym. Yep. But we made we made the best of it. I I thoroughly enjoyed seeing some of the some of the old guys and their kids who are continuing to grow up and and they're so damn cute. But but yeah, we got an interesting episode this week. I think we're going to talk about. I mean, we're going to go with a market update. Q1 is in the books, and mm-hmm. it was a good one. Um, we got a nice little merger in the WWE and the UFC. We're not going to talk too much about it, but I had to mention it because I mean, what, what is the, the WWE got valued at 9.1 billion and the UFC is being valued at 12. Yeah. It was just 12. right before Joel and I started recording. We were, I was on Twitter looking at we're we're going to go through maybe some, some Joe, Joe Pompliano is one of our favorite follows from a sports business news standpoint for bringing information up on this podcast. And he, Tweeted just before we started recording that CNBC was, yeah. So Endeavor is, I, I believe, would have been the venture that purchased the UFC from Dana White and and his business partners back in 2016 for like, I think, what did I say, four or six billion. And they are now making a bid or have come to an agreement with WWE because it went up for sale after Vince McMahon had some some issues we'll just call it in in, in, <laughs> in the past months or years, et cetera. But that, that franchise, I mean, like, I don't know for, I don't know about you, but like, I mean, when I was a kid, 10, 11, 12 years old, I was totally into wrestling and, you know, love the entertainment, love whatever it represented. Obviously thought it was real at that point too. But I always thought when I was getting older, I was like, man, there's no way this kind of keeps up, especially after the UFC kind of came to prominence too, where you had the real wrestling, the real fighting, but it hasn't stopped. It's just the rocket ship. And yeah, so $9 billion. And they're going to be merging it with the UFC to make it one publicly traded entity, apparently. So shareholders of WWE probably pretty happy right now. No kidding. Up 33% this year. For you, Cam, who was your favorite wrestler growing up? The Rock, 100%. Yeah. Because he just me. came into prominence when I was like watching it. So I don't really yeah. have the same, like if you talk to like some of our, like I know you and I don't have, well, I guess we, we kind of like you have some older kind of half brothers. I have two older half brothers. So like, you know, they're like Hulk Hogan and Macho Man, Randy, Randy Savage. His name, yeah, Randy Savage. Like those guys were obviously like kind of the first leaders and the first like huge faces of it. But I guess like, yeah, for sure as the rock and like stone cold, Steve Austin didn't really like him because they had Goldberg really at the time, but remember Goldberg. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Well, cause then they had like the two, the WCW and WWE and you kind of, like, oh, yeah. 
the rivalry between both. It was crazy. Yeah. I never thought it would continue, but it really has held up over time. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, to think that they could sell out arenas with that sort of entertainment still kind of confuses me. But I mean, that's why not there's so many niches in in yeah. entertainment these days. The think fact about that why WWE could sell for this. Why has a soap opera been able to be on the air for 50 years? It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a market for it. Yeah. So never be deterred by something being ridiculous in somebody's <laughs> eyes. Just <laughs> because right. your dad thinks what you do for a living is dumb doesn't mean it won't pay so uh, yeah i was a randy savage fan obviously i didn't necessarily watch him growing up but going back and watching some of those videos i just love him his the gifts that i get to use because of macho man randy savage so I yeah much appreciate very gifable sport for sure <laughs> yeah no doubt so so we'll get into your market update here i think obviously we'll have some post budget comments here from a canadian perspective we kind of alluded to some of the things we thought we might be seeing in, in the budget. And, and most of those kind of came to fruition, at least in some which way, shape or form. And there's a couple of tax items too, that I think are worth mentioning, at least at a high level. And hopefully, I mean, for, again, for sports fans out there, golf fans like you and I, we're on, we're into master's week here. Oh, First off, yeah. shout, shout out Corey Connors, our Canadian boy. He got hot on the weekend and just won the kind of the, the tournament, the Valero Texas Open. And he's going to be heading to Augusta this week. So hopefully you can ride that momentum and bring the green jacket north of the border again. Absolutely big win. I mean, there wasn't a lot of big names at that tournament. However, I'm a, I'm a big Corey Connors fan, ball striker, du jour. He's, he's the man. I mean, he's the best golfer in Canada right now, no doubt. I, I would assume that pushes him into the top 20 in world rankings. He's got to be somewhere close for sure. I think he was having kind of a rough start to the year, but yeah, well, let's, we think we have like five Canadians in the field next week or four yeah. for sure. So that's awesome to see. And I think and like maybe to at, the, at the end of the podcast, I think we should do some predictions, maybe get some, maybe pick, you know, four or five guys each and, and, and put some, put some money on the line heading into next week. I like the sounds of that. And then I'd probably wrap it up with the, with the Goldman Sachs AI report and which industries are dead by 2028. Yeah. We'll, we'll leave the terrible news for the last piece. Yeah. yeah. Most people have not turned or will have tuned up by then. So that's good. So from a market <laughs> update perspective, I'm going to discuss kind of where we're sitting with regards to Q1 performance and then kind of dive into what I'm feeling at the moment. And I'm all about the feels as most people have figured out by, I don't know, year three of this podcast, but the S&P 500 specifically was up five and a half percent over the first quarter. Canada, the TSX was 2.9%. The NASDAQ was up 16.8. The Russell was up 2.3, the Russell 2000. The S&P mid cap up three and a half. And then when you go and you look at Europe, it was up 10.3%. Japan, 7.8% in emerging markets, 4.1%. Now, what does that all mean? Well, to me, when I look at that, and then I take a look at the currency and commodity returns in Q1, you'll see WTI that was down 5.5%. You have gold that was up 9%. The US dollar down 1%. And copper and silver both up respectively 1 and 7. I think what you're, what you're starting to see here is a cooling off of the important commodities that were from a consumption perspective, but a bounce back in the names or individual securities that did particularly poorly in 2022. So how is it that the NASDAQ was up nearly 20% while the S&P 500 and the TSX were only up 2.9 and 5.5? Well, it's 
very simple to describe actually how this occurred. So the S&P 500 has 504 names inside of it. And a big percentage of that index is basically six companies. So Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA. So that's the semiconductor company, design company, Alphabet, Google, Facebook, or Meta, Amazon, and Tesla. And those companies, those seven names make up while their S&P, the S&P's year-to-date performance is again, five and a half. Those companies make up 133% of the index gains this year. So of the remaining stocks, though the contributing 597 names that I didn't list, they are on average down this year. But those main companies, those ones that I just mentioned are up. Apple up 27%, Microsoft up 20.2, NVIDIA up 90, Facebook up 77, Amazon up 23, Tesla up 68, and then Google up 17. And why did that happen? Well, I think it's pretty easy. It's, it's basically the fact that the market has started to price in the fact that the Federal Reserve, the Bank of Canada has stopped raising rates or they're currently there's an 89% chance or the market is predicting an 89% chance of there being a rate cut at the end of this year. This is what the 10th time I've mentioned this on this podcast. So just to, to give people a sense of where we're at, while performance has been decent or to even pretty good, the main contributors to this to the to the index are carrying a lot of the weight. The names that did particularly well last year are the ones that are being revised the most going into this next quarter. So energy, industrials, consumer staples, those companies that you buy when things seem tumultuous or you, you think that things are going to get worse. Well, they aren't doing particularly well this year. Now, while we're speaking today, it seems like we're going to get a some sort of agreement out of OPEC, where they're going to have production cuts, which has contributed to a $5 raise in or the price of WTI and Brent. At least it's what, 10 o'clock at night right now, 1030 at night right now. We're sitting at a 5 to 7% gain on, on oil heading into the next week. But that is likely the, the result of the White House talking with Saudi Arabia on SPR being refilled. So the the strategic reserve, but then also OPEC is some sort of agreement to, to cutting going into the summer. Now, everyone is going to be upset because now it's going to be more expensive to fill up your, your gas tank. But I think that this is going to be a story heading into the end of the, into the center of this year or the middle of this year. And it'll continue to be the, this will be something that hurts from an inflation perspective. It is a large percentage from a consumption and, and, and the increasing costs. However, I still think that the, the momentum is still to the downside. Now, I mean, from a feels perspective, what am I, what am I feeling right now? Well, right now it feels, the market feels really, really tricky. We're hovering around that 4,000 to 4,100 and we're fighting with this, this urge to, to hedge the downside because we feel as though we're going into recession. And as we move into the back half of this podcast, we're going to talk about Christia Freeland and her budget, the Canadian budget, and how she's already indicated that Canada is likely going to head into a recession this year. The United States is still kind of working, and and I shouldn't say working, I should say they're they're trying to work that out. They don't know whether that's going to happen. The, the government hasn't come out in, in the case of Christia Freeland and said that there's likely going to be a minor recession. I think that in the United States, that is 
sort of being worked out in the markets right now. And if in fact we do have a hard landing, it's likely that we we see a 3,600 on the S&P 500. If we don't, well, we could be at all-time highs by end of year. That is where we are right now, and we're kind of just right in between that. And it's really, really challenging. Tech companies right now are sounding like they're strong. I think that the the prevailing narrative with regards to artificial intelligence is screaming that these businesses, especially large tech companies, are going to be the ones that benefit most from this new technology. And all of the reports coming out of the banks and research firms are kind of telling that exact story. So what do I think? I think you got to keep watching. Q2 earnings are about to start rolling out. Should be fun. I'm about to start getting... I'm about to start getting busy again. I don't know in a month or so. So yeah, should be fun. I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, and I feel as though it's been a pretty darn good start to the year. And if it was me, I'd be I don't know. I shouldn't. This is not financial advice, but I, I really do feel like it's going to be bumpy in April. And you know what? Seasonality wise, April actually tends to be a very good month. It's May that sucks. So should be interesting. And Cam, I'm going to let you kind of read us in with regards to this this new budget, because I am not super happy with it. And I'd love for you to kind of set the table. Yeah, well, I think, you know, from my perspective, I guess how like my firm and how I look at this is that we're pretty tax focused specifically in relation to what's being announced and what's being changed and what, what kind of rhetoric is coming out in relation to even some of the proposed legislation and what that might mean for future years or what where the plans are going, et cetera. I think one thing I know you wanted to touch on for sure, maybe anti-growth wouldn't, would be a bit harsh, but just the general sentiment that you got from from some of her her, her comments or, on, or lack thereof, I guess, on, on economic growth. Did you want to start there? Well, I mean, quite frankly, I think they did little to nothing to encourage growth. I think that it, the the idea of or a growth-oriented budget usually incorporates certain things. So usually, I mean, what does a budget generally deliver that is trying to encourage an economy to grow? Well, you would prescribe something like a smaller deficit, a lower tax or reduction in taxes, you'd have an encouragement of more competitive markets and you'd have less regulation and you probably wouldn't have an ocean of subsidies. Now, why, I mean, I'm, I understand where they're coming from with these subsidies, but I think that our two governments that are controlling our country right now are drunk. They're completely unable to govern without giving money away hand over fist. And we've gotten ourselves into this position where we're unable to take away the punch bowl. We've gone from a predicted budget deficit of 30 billion to now two years in a row being 40 plus. And we keep on tacking on these, these new items that are coming from no new tax dollars. So effectively, what does that mean? Well, our budget's going from a deficit of 25 to 30 to 40 to now 46 billion and in from a in in the negative and none of it is infrastructure built none of it is an investment or what i would determine or call an investment 
it's literally just dollars going into or being pumped into our economy so as to stimulate immediately. None of it is encouraging infrastructure purchase or net or positive sum investment. And that is a huge problem for me. Where is the infrastructure spend? Why is it constantly dollars in our pockets and, and more subsidies, more subsidies, more subsidies, bigger deficits, more subsidies, dental free, food free. It, it just, it, it never ends. And I, I find that that's kind of where I've found this budget to be contentious and it's more of the same. So, yeah, and I, I think some of that, like to your point about who is governing currently. And I think the fact that they're, I guess I don't know the inner workings 100%, but the fact that if the Liberals currently want to do anything, they need the support of the NDP, I would say more, more or less, right? So yeah. I think when you do have a minority government like that, to come out with a budget that may or may not be perceived as, you know, aggressive or, you know, in, in any which way, shape or form, maybe just in, it could be viewed as being something that might be a staple for what this government might represent. They're not, they don't feel like, and I would agree actually that they're not in position to do something like that. So they, this is a pretty, I would say blase budget in terms of some of the initiatives or the investments that are being made. I think we have to remember where we are, where we're at in the political cycle as well, where I think there's obviously going to be a new federal election at some point here. And what, do they want to go out and even if it was something negative that we would view as being like, okay, we're going to increase personal tax rates by 5% across the board, like the flat federal tax rate for employment wages or whatever it might be. They don't want to go and do something like that where it's, you know, to your point, creating more tax dollars to then invest in something where it's like, okay, well, you can at least see this, you know, the levers being pulled here to then be able to do this. And it's like, you can get on board with that as a rational voter, and citizen of Canada, if you're like, okay, well, if, if this is being done, but this is what's being done with those dollars and that's what's going to end up being a, a net benefit, like you said, on, on a long term, then you can get behind that. But they're not going out there and doing something that is going to be potentially controversial or create a bunch of a bunch of hoopla in the media. They're going to continue. They're, by and large, it's more of the same that we've seen in terms of rhetoric. And they need to continue to, if they want to get to the next point of... I mean, I'm sure the liberals, I mean, obviously their goal would be to obtain a majority government next next way around, but that's looking less and less possible based off of how the relationship has worked with the NDP as of late and the additional support that they've been getting on the NDP side at, from a federal sense over the last, I would say, five to seven years. So it's, it's a very interesting position and in I would agree with you by and large. There's nothing here that's really pumping me up. <laughs> Put, to put it informally from a investment standpoint. But I, w I will, let's talk about a few of the things, I guess, that we might have mentioned last week. And so the, the clean energy one would have been kind of the biggest news item or the item that they were hanging their hat on in terms of, hey, we're creating these programs and it's, it's going to be great for businesses. So I'm just going to read through a few of them from like a high level standpoint. So clean electricity investment tax credit. So a 15% refundable tax credit for investments in specific electricity generating activities and equipment for the transmission of electricity between provinces. Both new projects and refurbishment of existing projects will be eligible. 
So that starts, that's a, basically a 10-year runway. Same with the clean technology manufacturing credit. So a 30% refundable tax credit for the cost of investments in new machinery and equipment used to manufacture or process key clean energy technologies and extract, process, or recycle key critical materials minerals. So that's an interesting one to me. Again, we're talking about refundable tax credits at the corporate level. Definitely attractive. Definitely this combined with some of the initiatives around capital equipment purchases. And so so for small business owners out there, the, the ability to, to claim up to $1.5 million, we talked about it on the podcast in a previous episode of, of new equipment and be able to write those off immediately. So some of these credits combined with some of the, the capital property initiatives that have come through over the past couple of years are definitely attractive in terms of being able to, to go out and spend money. And then with this refundable credit, obviously to be able to get, you know, money, even more money back potentially through refundable credit. So it, I think it's a good move. Like I think having these types of refundable credits is a, is a good idea in, in terms of creating the, or spurring spending. But I guess at the end of the day right now, we don't, I haven't seen all of this written through tax legislation yet. So to be able to know exactly what for example, specific electricity generating activities might mean. We don't know what the definition of that is yet. So I think we have to obviously see this roll out, but the fact that there's been incentives put into clean clean electricity, sorry, clean technology, clean hydrogen investment, clean technology investment, all interesting credits that obviously if you're working in those spaces, it's something that you should definitely be asking about and understanding what does that potentially mean for me spending money today versus tomorrow versus two years from now, et cetera. A couple other items that I wanted to bring up too was, I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast before, but there's this, it's definitely something that you, it's very specific to each individual small business. And it's very hard to speak in generalities on this, but there was a bill, Bill C-208, which was, I think definitely covered in the news a little bit, but it mostly high level related to the intergenerational transfers of businesses. So from parents to kids, et cetera. And for a long time in this country, it was very hard to do that in a tax efficient way. And Bill C-208 came out and proposed some sweeping changes on that, which was welcome news to a lot of people in my profession and in the tax profession in terms of reorganizations, et cetera, and doing planning for, for families who wanted to businesses intergenerationally. So there has been some pullback on basically what is allowed and the benefits of the planning around Bill C-208. So my advice just in general is that you, if you have a bit small business and you foresee yourself transitioning that business to your, to your kids or the potential is there, that you go talk to an accountant and talk to a tax professional about some opportunities that may or may not exist under this Bill C-208 regime. And the time clock is kind of ticking on that as these changes that are currently being or have been tabled and and passed through with this budget are going to be coming into effect, I believe, on January 1st, 2024. So there might be engagements that you have going on already or existing conversations you've already had, or maybe you're thinking about this. Definitely something worth having a conversation about to say, what does this look like and how can I not even take advantage of, but just structure this properly where we can do this in a tax efficient way in terms of the intergenerational transfers. But it was definitely a hot topic in 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 my realm for the past two years in terms of when this bill first got released and the opportunities that were 
that came from it in terms of tax planning opportunities, and then the kind of immediate reaction from the Department of Finance on on retracting some of those items. So there has been a lot of legislation written over the past 12 to 15 months in relation to this, and it's becoming a bit more restrictive, whereas before the opportunities were a bit more broad. So we're starting to see that the light at the end of the tunnel, which you do not want to see in this case. And we want to make sure that, or you want to make sure as a small business owner who might be, again, thinking about transitioning business within your family to definitely have those conversations because this, the opportunity is starting to shrink. The other thing I think that you and I talked about that was interesting and probably a welcomed item for people in making registered education savings plan investments. So there has been an increase to the, I guess, maximum withdrawal in any given year from five to 8,000 for full-time students and from 2,500 to 4,000 for part-time students. There's also, I think, a change in relation to, there's always some stipulations before with, with divorced or separated parents, but so new rules will allow divorced or separated parents to open up a joint RESP for their children. So that's all well and good. Obviously, I think those limits that had been there had been in place for a very long time and not had been indexed for a very long time. And we all know the conversation around how expensive schooling is. So the, the ability to increase what that, that withdrawal can be is, I think, a welcomed change. But the, the only thing I would say that doesn't make sense is that for a lot of people out there, maybe not you and I, but because we don't have kids going to university quite yet, but there is a, a cap on how much. So m- many of us might have done this, transferred part of your tuition credits to your parents, who are the ones maybe potentially helping you with your tuition payments. And so that's been capped at $5,000 for a very long time in terms of the maximum amount of, of credit to transfer over, which is then a non-refundable tax credit at 15%. And that has not been indexed, which, I mean, just blows my mind that you wouldn't apply the same rationale. The fact that is you're indexing for the withdrawal, but you're not indexing for the amount of transfer I just wanna, that could be applied. This government has never done a good job. They're great at taking money and spending it. They're not really great at figuring out how to get more of it. So the idea of indexing for contributions just goes way over their head. I don't <laughs> understand how – actually, it makes all the sense in the world why they missed this one. Yeah. Like, and what do you mean you need to make money? You <laughs> yeah, just what spend you mean? it. Exactly. And the last thing that, I mean, I don't know what the, this sounds very, I don't know, I'm being maybe a bit conspiracy theorist here, which is not like me, as you know, but yes, there is an automatic tax filing measure that's coming through. So the, the CRA will pilot a new automatic filing service for Canadians who currently do not file their taxes to help them receive, this is how they word it currently do not file their taxes to help them receive certain benefits to which they are entitled. Following consultations, the CRA will present a plan in 2024 to expand this service. The CRA also plans to expand taxpayer eligibility for the file my return service, which allows taxpayers to file their returns by telephone. So the fact that there could be sweeping changes where I guess I'll put a bit of a caveat on this and mention this at the end, but the fact that they have the potentially have the power to automatically file for you is not something that I like the sounds of. Now, if someone is super delinquent on filing and they're obviously your tax slips are generated if you, you know, work for an employer and it's sent in to CRA and it's registered under your SIN number, et cetera, they have all this information anyways. And if they wanted to, they can, as it currently stands, can assess you based off of the information that they have. And if you're a delinquent on filing, 
this is supposed to be around, again, how they're wording it is about, obviously, for people who haven't filed and may be eligible for, you know, GST credits, like maybe like low income families or whatever, and potentially have not filed their tax returns. There's GST credits to claim, there's, you know, potentially child ben- child care benefit items to claim, because all, all of these these benefit programs are contingent on the fact that, that you file your income tax returns, and then your income is known, and so then you know what bracket you fall in to receive or not receive some of these benefits. So I can definitely see some of the positives that might be alluded to through this. But at the same time, I am a little bit worried about what this could mean in terms of sweeping powers, in terms of doing automatic tax filings on their side. I would like to know a little bit more about what that program is going to look like for sure. And the other side of it is too, is like, I think if people hear about this, like there's, I mean, you and I have had a chat many times about people who, you know, potentially, you know, need tax services or doing it themselves on TurboTax or pick, take your pick on tax software, et cetera. There our tax code and what we can, how our tax returns are filed, et cetera, are becoming, it's becoming more complicated by the year in terms of how things are done and the right boxes to click and what information needs to be filed at what time, et cetera. And I could just see this creating even more headaches, I guess, for taxpayers out there in terms of potentially saying, well, this service is very easy and I can do it over the telephone or I can file my own return very easily at a low cost or no cost. And that's great. But I think just be wary of those types of things. The only thing I can say just in my experiences, and because you could even think you have a very, very simple, simplistic, straightforward tax return to file. And you might miss something that results in a big penalty, or you might miss something that you think you're reporting the correct way. Like, you know, I just off the cuff, like dividends, for example, I've, I've worked with a client once who was was filing his own tax return and filing and then had his own corporate a small business that he was running he was taking money out of the business recording it as a dividend on his personal tax return which is great the fact that he did that and he's reporting it but he's reporting it as the wrong kind of dividend for five years and he was reporting it as a dividend that has a lower tax rate that applies at the personal level and he was like i i filed a tax return and said yeah you owe this and he said well, I've never owed that much before. And I was like, oh, well, I should probably look at your, like, you know, t- t- let me take a look at your previous tax returns. He's a brand new client. And I was like, oh, yeah. I mean, depending, I don't know your corporate situation completely, but I don't think you earn these kind of dividends. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? There's different kinds of dividends. And I was like, oh my God. So then we go back and find out that he basically owes about $45,000 back taxes because he hasn't been reporting the correct kind of dividend for years. So it's just like, even something just as simple as that. It's like, I have a T4, I have a T5, that's it. Again, some of these things can be, this when you're self-reporting can lead to big, big issues. So I don't know. I, I'm intrigued to learn more about what this automatic tax value might mean in the future and what it could mean. I mean, obviously it has an effect on us and like, I mean, personal tax is not like a massive part of our business, but it's definitely intertwined because we have so many small business owner clients and obviously your what you're doing the corporate side matters what happens on your personal side etc so it's definitely intertwined and we'll definitely be getting lots of questions about what this might mean but i am hesitant to trust that it's going to be a net benefit i i mean it's it could be great 
but it also, I think it often comes down to the person filling out anything, filling out the forms. I mean, it's so far beyond my ability to, I just, I, it's taxed outside of the, the investment realm is just a foreign entity, like small business tax filing and, and all of the, the processes that go into it. It's just, it's a lot, especially when you're a busy person. And yeah. not only that, it takes up a lot of brain space, like the, the planning side from, and from a business perspective and a family perspective that all the concepts all can make sense, but then going and doing it right on time. And then allocating the amount of time required to do it is just a lot. It's a huge undertaking. And I think it's unappreciated for almost most, for most people generally. And especially for new business owners and people that are kind of starting up, I think that it seems super easy in year one and then year three comes around and you're like, and you're behind, you've made mistakes and then you go to a tax professional and then you got to go back and you owe way more money than you thought. I think that if anybody, if there's one piece of advice that I'm giving to, and this I think is real financial advice, you can take this as financial advice. If you are opening up a corp, go and get yourself a professional accountant. Because if you are thinking about doing it and going it alone, I'm telling you right now that your time, especially if you've already deemed that you're going to start a business, that your time is valuable and you're going to provide a service or build a build a product or produce a product, it is worth it to go and get a good one because you are wasting a whole bunch of energy and time and money doing something that you think that you are saving doing. And it's not in your best interest. People that are self-employed T4 people with RSPs, et cetera, and Liras and whatever, much easier for you to go about and doing this. It's just a very simple process. However, it is not the case for small business owners, medium-sized business owners, et cetera. And yes, I, th- I think you should have an accountant across the board. But however, in this case, I, I think that for me, I work with, I don't know, upwards of 75 small business owners, medium-sized business owners. And the ones, actually, none of them don't use accountants. And it makes my life so much better and there they're was, richer because of it i was gonna say there was my ad read for joel too <laughs> as an accountant <laughs> as a whole our yeah, yeah no doubt I, I, um, I think just to close the loop on that just i the last thing i wanted to say is like i mean yes there is plenty of examples of people out there with very straightforward and or things that you can learn and do yourself and you do not necessarily need an accountant to proofread something or do it but it's it's just the fact that I, I don't I wouldn't rush into using the service if it was there for me based off what I know over my nine years, almost yeah. ten now of working. This because I, I I've seen the complexities that have increased on the on the corporate side, and there has also been a lot of changes on the personal side too in relation to reporting. So like something as simple as like selling your home and understanding that you now have to report the sale of your principal residence. And no, there are no, certain no. things that need to be it's done. It's tax-free, Cam. There's no reporting. That's right. And it is. And it's like, but then if you get caught not filing that information, it's no different than actually on the UHT front. We talked about last week, right? There's yeah. plenty of people who have, there's nothing wrong with you or your corporation holding a residential property. But now there's a requirement for you to file this information return. And if you don't do it, you can get smacked with a massive penalty just for not filing a three-piece like three pieces of paper in. And so that's, that's just the thing you have to think about. It's like, even if you have any kind of major transaction, anything that you think may or may not be reportable, it's just worth asking those questions at the very least. So, and as a a small aside on that, I want to give an update 
we talked about the fact about those UHT filing being something new and due at the end of April. As part of the budget announcement, they also announced some relief measures for this current year. So there is going to be interest or penalties charged on late filings up to October 1st is my understanding. It might actually be later than that, but I want to say, I feel comfortable saying October 1st. Definitely check with your accountant if this is something you've already talked about or are planning to talk about with them. The only thing I will say is that your return will still be considered late if it is filed after April 30th, which can have other effects. So if you have other corporate tax accounts or other personal tax accounts, if you file late on multiple different accounts. So you might have your corporate account, you might have or your corporate income tax account, you might have your GST account, and then this UHT account. If you file late on your UHT account, then you file late on your corporate income tax account, then there could be higher interest and penalties that apply as a result of you filing late on multiple programs. But at the end of the day, it's still welcome news in terms of this kind of gap, this relief measure, because many people are scrambling kind of over the past, I would say, month or so, you know, realizing for the first time that they have this obligation to file these returns. So that is def- that was definitely welcomed news out of the budget announcement as well. Yeah, for sure. And before we move on, I, I wanted to touch on that $100,000 interest-free loan that you get with getting a consult from a professional. And this is not an ad read. I just wanted to get your explanation of what's going on here. I had, I mean, my first conversation about it on Thursday and then three of them on Friday. And I think it's just going to continue to pick up. Can you shed some light on that? I mean, interest-free loan sounds awesome. Yeah. So the, the that's the the CDAP program is what acronym I, I'm using. So Canadian Digital Adoption Plan. So it was a measure taken by the federal government. There's a I can't remember the ending date. It's like the later of the date and the amount of money that's been committed. So $4 billion has been committed to this. And so essentially how the program runs, I, I, I'm not going to be able to speak enough to this because I'm. this is more of a digital advisory type engagement professional service. So there's specific firms across Canada. So like my firm, for example, like we have our own digital advisor service line. So obviously clients that I work with, I know enough to be dangerous to potentially see an opportunity with something and then I'm referring and then being a part of those conversations and trying to learn more about it. So what we've been mostly focusing on and what I've been mostly focusing on is this within that CDAP program is called this boost your boost your grant, which is most of your clients or the people you've come in contact with have talked about. So essentially it is a you you go through a advisory engagement, which so has nothing to do with implementation or anything. It's essentially just going through the kind of the research phase and understanding what your options are in terms of picking something in your business that you need to upgrade and want to like bring, innovate or make better. So this could be something as simple as like choosing between a new, like finding options for a new accounting program, or it could be an inventory management system, or it could be improving your uh, supply chain line in really, or sorry, not supply chain line, but your uh, what's Henry Ford known for? I'm not sure why I'm blanking on this. Being a the assembly Nazi line, your assembly line with with building oh. something in a manufacturing plant. So it, it, the 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 strokes are very broad in terms of what this program can cover, and essentially you go through its engagement, and it has to be with a pre-approved professional firm. So there's a list of them on on the federal website in relation to this program. And so you'd engage with them and you are able to receive a up to a $15,000 grant towards the cost of what this advisory service is. So essentially you're getting 
somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, tens, if not hundreds of professional service time in relation to coming up with this engagement that's giving you options in relation to whatever it is that you want to upgrade. You get, you apply and get this grant from the federal government and you use those funds to apply against the professional fees that you've incurred in relation to this, this engagement. You pay kind of a fraction. I would say the, the maximum you're going to pay is $1,500 out of pocket for, again, in this example, a $16,000 engagement with a professional firm. You then have this report and this basically this plan to implement potentially on putting in a new accounting system or to put a new CRM system through and it's going to include buying a bunch of equipment like tablets for your field guys and the time management system, etc. There's all these things that are integrated and whatever it is that you're upgrading. And you can take that plan and then you can go to BDC is the, is the lender in this case. And you can receive uh, between a fifty and a hundred thousand dollar loan, depending on your revenue levels. And you can receive that zero percent, zero percent interest over six years. Essentially, you get one year principal postponement, is my understanding in in most cases, and then it's payable over the you know the remaining five years. And those costs can be used, or the, that loan can be used to kind of implement whatever the plan is. So that's not to say there's not going to be. Additional professional costs potentially is obviously there's, you know, implementation costs that come with training and et cetera, et cetera, with, with, with that stuff. But that loan can also be used to buy the equipment that you potentially need, the infrastructure, et cetera. And so it's, it's a very interesting program. This, I mean, a ton of people have this program got re- released I want to say almost a year ago now. Maybe nine months at the very at the very most, but the the program itself has has had a lot of uptake across the country. Obviously, when you're talking about fifteen thousand dollar maximum grants out of four billion, it's a you know small <laughs> it's a it's a small number out of a big pot, but it's it's definitely got a lot of uptick. And so you definitely want to you know go just ask your even just going to ask a professional like either someone like Joel like any professional kind of thing about the program and who they could potentially could talk to. Obviously, a lot of accounting firms or law firms, et cetera, might have existing kind of tech divisions that might be offering this and might be a pre, pre-approved office for, for this program. But it's it's definitely been something that's very interesting at the end of the day, too, for you can just you can do it just from the sense of wanting the consultation and going through the engagement, and then you don't have to necessarily act on that until you feel ready. So it's 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 a really good program to go through and get professional advice on something that you you know may or may not have a, a great feel on or a great understanding of, and then you can choose that to use that information to then implement something you know over a five year period potentially or upfront and be able to repay that over a five year period. So. I appreciate that. So let's talk about something that doesn't suck. And actually, one thing I want to bring up really quickly. So the Rogers jaw deal got approved yeah. last week. I didn't really start reading about this until, I don't know, two hours ago. And listen to this statement from the, the Canadian government. They are, well, they're basically just stating that this will increase competition in Canada. Rogers buying Shaw has been approved by Canada's industry minister. And they have commented suggesting that this is going to increase competition in the communication sector in Canada. So approved big deal too. Like this is a huge, huge deal. I would, I would guess that Rogers and, and Shaw are two of the 
top 100 businesses in Canada. I mean, the combined businesses will then be doing roughly 20 billion a year in revenue. These are two of the wealthiest families in the country. So it's no surprise that they got this through. I'm sure that the current management government is more than comfortable chatting with these two these two families. They're probably very close, went to the same schools, et cetera. However, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to see how this changes things. I'm a Rogers phone user with a, and a Shaw internet subscriber. And I, I mean, I don't see how this is going to make my options increase in size. I mean, maybe it does. But the most interesting part of this was actually the fact that they had to then Rogers and Shaw had to then cut a deal with Quebec Corps, a major provider of cable and wireless services in the provinces of Quebec. The Montreal-based firm will acquire Freedom Mobile, which represents the majority of Shaw's 2.3 million wireless accounts for almost $3 billion, this making them the number four player in Canada. And I'm pretty sure that that specific deal right there is where they're going to get their or drive their, this is competitive and increasing competition in Canada. The Freedom Agreement is the, is the key here, in my opinion. I think that this is cl a clear victory for Rogers. They've been trying to add this piece to their business for quite some time. And uh, yeah, I mean, I have no opinion on the stock or anything like that. It's not not particularly interesting to me. I'm of the opinion over a ne the next 35 years, I don't want to be any of these companies because Starlink is going to be better than them. But nonetheless... I see a um, Starlink ad for 50% off every day on Twitter. So I wonder why. I wonder what, yeah, I wonder who, <laughs> you think they're getting the deal for advertising on Twitter? Yeah, Google, how will Rogers Shaw merger increase competition on Google right now and go to the news section? That'll just, that's a good 10 minutes, I would say, right there of, this is BS, <laughs> essentially. I don't know how this is possible. I'm sure the Globe and Mail and the National Post will all have fantastic articles for us to read tomorrow morning. But markets are up, heading up into the week. On to more interesting stuff. The the Australian Grand Prix was full of drama. You were updating me, but after the Oilers absolutely <laughs> clobbered Anaheim, I watched a little bit. I watched the first like six or seven laps. Now that I'm a new F1 fan that knows everything, I stopped watching after Max Verstappen passed Lewis Hamilton. I was like, well, it's over. So I went to sleep. It sounds like there was a lot of drama at the end. Yeah, there was. Well, I think that was, uh, I guess they had probably been back for two years now, sorry, in Australia. But that, that used to be like the the first race of every year was in Australia. So it's, it's a heck of an event. It's a street race too. And they've like increased the the length of a couple of the like straightaways or sections or whatever. So there's more opportunity for passing. But it was kind of crazy yesterday that like, the first two were relatively, first two races, sorry, were relatively, you know, basically no drama in them. And so yesterday they had three standing starts, which is like only happened like three times in or three or four times. I think the broadcast was saying in F1 history. And that was a result of, of the start of the race and then two red flags happening, which is obviously the stoppage of the race. And then they restart. So, so yeah, your prediction that Max was going to run away with it was mostly true up until the fact that the race got red flagged at lap 55. And so they had to restart again. And so they didn't really get to see whether or not it would happen again or what, sorry, whether or not there would be any more drama because there was a crash immediately after, on the first turn immediately after the, the restart. So they ended up rejigging back to what their initial positions were and that's how the race ended. So it was just, it was one of those instances where in, in F1, 
where I feel like I've been a fan for a long time and I kind of was aware of some of the rules, but there's so much regulatory piece to the sport. Like they're the FIA. So the regulatory body, like there's instances within the race all the time where they're making rulings. So like they're giving guys five second penalties or they're, and so there's like notices above on the broadcast saying the FIA is looking into this incident between car X and car Y and they're making a ruling on it and they're like applying it live, like during the sport, right? But you don't see that in anything else realistic. Like, well, I mean, like refereeing, obviously we see a penalty being called, we see, but there's a stoppage, right? Whereas this is like the race is going on and all these things are being decided. And then it's like the driver is getting this, you know, notification saying you have to let guy behind you pass because you made an illegal move or, hey, you have a five second penalty. So you either have to come into the pit and serve it or we're going to run to the end of the race and we have to try and get a five second gap to the person behind us. So that way it doesn't affect our placing. So it's all very, it, that that side of it, like I think once you get into the technical, because I know you were saying like, you know, new F1 fans, time new F1 fans, but I found like the general sentiment that's coming out of people who are kind of getting a little bit more invested in understanding the rules and the regulations. And it's like, you know, why is, you know, you just mentioned, you know, Red Bull has been running away with it the first two weeks and essentially the first three weeks in terms of their speed, their pace, their ability to be that much faster than everybody else. And so most people would say like, well, why? Like, didn't they just put a bunch of regulations in to like bring more competition in? But it's like, there's so much work that goes into the engineering of like the shape of the cars and how they perform on straightaways versus corners versus chicanes versus like how they, how the tires are affected based on the weight of the car and how the car is positioned, et cetera. There's so many intricacies to it where like, if you do want to, like I said, like, like invest your time and, and learn more about it. It's you actually become like, I have found like, I'm way more interested in like how things work, <laughs> like just like on an engineering front where I was like, my brain never worked that way. And this sport is like making me more interested in that. It's like, wow, it's amazing that this small change that they're comparing and the broadcast does a great job of this too. Like if you actually tune into like the pre and posts and all that kind of stuff, they talk about, it's like this design feature creates more drag for this car, which is why they're losing two tenths of a second per lap as compared to this team in these situations. And it's like, it's crazy that that can make up that much of a difference over a 58 lap race. So you saw a little bit of that yesterday for sure. And there was just a bit more drama with, with events and, and whatnot and the FIA rulings. So it's, I mean, it's, it's not slowing down. Like, I think if you just, you know, read either Joe Pomp posts on, on F1 or are watching things like it, it's, it's still going onwards and upwards to my understanding. And it's going to be very, very interesting. They have kind of the first U S stop. I think they got Miami in May, I want to say, and then Vegas coming up and then the, um, you know, the usual one in Texas as well. So three stops in the U S so it's going to be very interesting to see the, the reaction and kind of see if they can kind of hop on that momentum they've gained in North America over the past few years with, obviously the Netflix show and, and just the general increase in, in popularity. Yeah. I mean, it took me to the fifth season of drive to survive to get fully engrossed. I've even been to a race and now I'm finally in. And you watch 10 laps. So now the next time that's the only thing that's tough though, right? For North America is like, you have like, obviously we can tape stuff and watch it whenever, but like for sports, like again, like I'm someone who's like live or nothing. Cause I'm going to just look at Twitter. Yeah. I already know what happened. So, yeah. So it's no, tough. I totally like, agree. That's the one thing that they have. That's tough. It's very cool that they race all over the world, 
but you can tell that's part the of the allure. That, yeah, but the fact that they're they've said you know no other country gets three races like Italy had two last year. You know, during the COVID years, for sure, there was multiple races in Britain and stuff because certain certain countries weren't letting people in, including Canada. But the fact that we now have like Montreal has always been a staple, but then we have three more races in North America. Like that's going to be such a big focus for them. Like I could even see them adding a fourth potentially. I'm guessing Mexico. Oh, sorry. And they do have Mexico. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. yeah, potentially thinking about maybe more South American stops just to kind of get in the same time zone. That's a good point. Because yeah, it's just such, if they can ride that wave, like obviously I think you, you have your cash cow and your European fans and you're never going to get rid of the certain, the certain races and the same things even with like the, like, I don't know. Imagine a race in Rio, dude. There, there is a Brazilian Grand Prix. I want to say. Or there was at one time for sure. Maybe they got rid of it because they had one in Sao Paulo. That's where it, that's where it is in, in Brazil. Oh, okay. But so, yeah, maybe I'm speaking at a term. Maybe there's like five or six in our time zone. But at the end of the day, the fact that they've increased two already, like they got, they added Miami last year and now they've already added Vegas. I think that's just a, a huge telling piece to the fact that they said, yeah, we got to get more eyeballs on this and, you know, more live eyeballs. Cause that's how you bring even more people, obviously, to mm-hmm. the sport. 100%. So, Masters Week. I think what we should do for uh, 50 bucks, we pick uh, pick five guys. Yeah. Ready to go? Yeah, I'll let, I'll, since you're a golf guy, I'll let you go first. All right. I'm going to go with Max Homa. Okay. I'm going to go with Rory. Well, that's a dumb pick. He can't win the Masters. It's his year, baby. Okay, Scotty, chef. That's such a bad pick. <laughs> You think he's the most boring man on TV golf? I do. I honestly think I think that they should actively get rid of him and just never allow him to golf again. But he's amazing. So, okay, I'm gonna take. This is probably way too early, but he's just in my head as being playing good lately. So, Sung J M. What? I like that. Patty Ice Cantlay. Okay, I'm. Morikawa. <laughs> okay. John Rom. Okay. And I'll take. I'm going to take Justin Thomas. You didn't go with Cam Smith? No. Screw Liv. That's fair. If I can get a flyer, can I take Cam Smith? Yep. Right. We'll take one Liv guy each. You take yeah, Cam okay. Smith. I'll take Brooksy since he just won this weekend. And he's hot. Yeah. Hot. hot. He looks and then, like he's about 35 pounds overweight, but. And then we'll uh, take one Canadian each. Okay. Well, I want Corey Connors, obviously. Okay. I'll take Mac Hughes. I like it. Man, there's so many good Canadians right now. I hope yeah. Bryson DeChambeau shoots 92. The, the hope <laughs> is that all those guys get crushed. So apparently Greg Norman was apparently saying that if any of the live guys win, He's like that all 17 others will be on the green celebrating with them because we're a team. It's like, why? Why would <laughs> no, you celebrate? Won't. Have you ever golf. seen a Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's cute though. The individual sport, Craigie. But yeah, get out of here. Okay, I love Did, the I love your picks. I love my picks. Obviously gonna love them. So we'll have we'll have the results by next Sunday. Yeah, we will. And the fifty dollars will be sent via e-transfer live on the podcast. So. No, no, no. I want two 20s and a 10. Either way, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. should be fun. So, Cam, thanks for tuning in. Hey, 
Thanks so much for listening. If you want any additional context or links to any of the podcasts or articles we mentioned, head over to our website. It's reformmillennials.com. While you're on the site, make sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. This should be common sense, but the podcast and website are for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Joel does work for gold investment management and all opinions expressed by him and guests of the podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinion of GIM Wealth or Gold Investment Management. GIM clients may hold positions discussed in the podcast. Thanks for listening.